people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Daddy loved this movie theater. He believed in this place and in me. Your father wanted you to be an actress. This theater can work. Well, I'll see to it personally. It's like Daddy always said. The show must go on. Fuck you, mother! Start the movie! I'm an actress. I am a filmmaker. In all of history, in all the annals of horror, there's never been a great female horror filmmaker. But you see how important that is? Action! I am the Scarlet Leper, and you called me a whore! No, no, I never said you were a whore. I said you were She's murdering her actors. By grinding out weekly gore films that she writes, directs, and stars in. Satisfying a rather large number of fans' unquenchable thirst for violence. Deborah Tenise's films are shocking. You're getting this in close-up, right? And fans say they're as real as it gets. Is that somebody screaming? Uh, we're making a new film. The cat! Welcome to another fantastically frightening Friday night at the Victoria Theatre. Without further ado... And do you know where the, uh, ladies' room is? Miss Deborah Tenise! Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Joshua Grinnell. He has been a co-host on this show before, but this time he is an interview subject talking all about his career, as well as his feature film debut, All About Evil, which is getting a re-release. Check out the movie. Hope you enjoyed the interview. You have been making films for a while. Can you tell me how you got into filmmaking? You know, I was one of those kids who knew not just filmmaking, but really was attracted to storytelling and show business from the time I was really little. And so my parents kind of explained to me as a kid what a director did. And it was like, oh, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be a director. But I was always putting on little plays and I, you know, joined a theater group. And then my parents in the 80s when camcorder, VHS camcorders, you know, came out, and you basically strapped a VCR to your waist and carried around this camera that recorded to tape, big deck. They got one. And I started making little movies with the neighborhood kids and stuff like that. So really from youngest possibly could be. But it wasn't until I went to college and, and studied film at Penn State that I started to get more, I guess, serious about filmmaking. And was All About Evil, was that your first feature film? First and only. Yeah. So my hope with this re-release, because when All About Evil was was finished and I went on this sort of tour with it, I just really wanted to do something else for a little bit and, and you know, got back into live performance. And one year turned into 10 years, you know, before I knew it. And so I have a bunch of scripts now and a bunch of ideas and I'm ready to dive back in. And my hope is that with the re-release and the fact that more people will get to see it, it'll be a reminder like to folks, you know, oh, that, that person's not just a satanic drag queen, but they can also make movies. When did you come up with the idea for the film? Actually, it was 2003 that I made a short film that, that the feature is based on. And that, excuse me, that movie's called Grindhouse. And 
Yeah, and I made that in 2003. And the movie is, I actually play like interviewer in that movie. And I interviewed Deborah Tadis, who's not played by Natasha Leone, but the character that Natasha plays, who's played by my friend Jennifer. And so that was really, that short film was really where the whole idea came from. And of all my short films, it was the only one that didn't center around this insane, absurd drag queen universe of parody horror movies. It was it was its own original idea. Peaches Christ wasn't part of the short film. And so it felt like the most natural to pursue doing a feature about. Along those lines, though, not necessarily beholden to the movie. I am always curious, when did you start being Peaches Christ? I made a film in college called Jizz Mopper. A love story that was my senior thesis film that I used to graduate. And there was a part in that movie that I co-wrote with a friend of mine. And most of my writing was around the part of this drag character and the actor we had hired to play the drag character, you know, it was central Pennsylvania in the in the 90s, like mid 90s, not even, yeah, not even the mid 90s. No, exactly the mid 90s. And and this was not a place where drag was popular. Actually, drag wasn't popular in general, but it certainly wasn't popular in central Pennsylvania. And so when the actor kind of got cold feet and didn't show up, I stepped in and I played the part. And my name was Peaches. And I and my friend Michael wanted to call the queen Peaches Christ, but the cinematographer... Eric, who I adore, but was like really Christian and came from a really Christian family, was kind of like, oh, my God, I'm already shooting this movie for you in a porno palace. Like, are you really going to, you know, make matters worse by calling yourself Peaches Christ? So in the movie, I'm actually called Peaches Nevada. And I don't know why. I have no idea why I'm called that other than, you know, maybe it was a last minute decision from Christ. But when I left Pennsylvania after I graduated in 1996... And and bought that one-way plane ticket to San Francisco. She became Peaches Christ, you know, and never really looked back. So when I landed in San Francisco in 96, that's really when Peaches Christ, the character, started to, you know, kind of happen or was born, I guess. So you were Peaches in the movie. Had you ever done drag before that? Or did you just kind of have to do it out of necessity? In Jizz Mopper, that was it. That was the first, like, literally, if you see that movie, that is the first time I've ever been in drag. You know, I say today, like, if I were if I were 20, you know, now, like, in today's age, I'm sure I would identify as non-binary and probably go by they, them pronouns and, and all of that, which I think is wonderful that young people have this sort of way to kind of express themselves. But back then, you know, I was, I guess what you would call like a club kid, you know, so I would wear sometimes lipstick to class and a barrette in my hair and was very kind of draggy without being a drag queen. And so my first time in drag, full drag, was in the movie, which I always tell young drag queens, do not capture your first time in drag on 16 millimeter film, you know, like, like practice, you know, work on it before you show up in a movie. There's a lot of cringeworthy moments in that film. 2003, you make the Grindhouse short. How long after that until you say this needs to be a feature film? Like all filmmakers, I think that I always had that dream of making a feature film. And I think, you know, filmmakers understand that you can make any movie really for for any amount of money, you know, but money's going to determine how you make your movie or what the movie's going to look like. But really, like, you know, I've seen great. I mean, I think that, you know, in my mind, it was that thing where it was like, I'm going to make a feature, you know, and I didn't know if the feature if I'd have a five thousand dollars to make the feature or five hundred thousand dollars. Right. Like. I just knew that I wanted to make a feature film. And that was something like when I kind of decide that I'm going to do something, I'm pretty, pretty determined. But I wanted to make it with more money than I had access to. So I started to pretty shortly after All About Evil came out, 2004, 2005, I started to write the script and talked to my friend Darren Stein. He and I had become friends. Darren wrote and directed a movie called Jawbreaker, which I had seen, you know, in movie theaters. And so Darren and I really bonded. He had been on NPR's This American Life talking about a documentary film that he had made about his childhood. And I was so taken by that interview he did with Ira Glass because 
so I felt like, oh my God, there's another me out there. Like I need to know this person. And so he and I ended up meeting at a film festival at the Castro Theater and we became instant friends. You know, it was either going to go one way or the other. We were either going to be really good friends or we were not going to get along, you know, one of those things. But we got along. And Darren at one point said, you know, you're a really talented filmmaker. Like you sell yourself short. Cause I was very self deprecating and, you know, very much like, Oh, my movies are so stupid. They're so, they're so dumb, you know? And Darren's like, no, they're funny. They make people laugh and they work and you make them for no money. So when you're ready to do a feature, I'd like to produce it. I would be honored to produce it. And that was a big deal for me because Darren really came from the Hollywood world, right? Like he made a studio film, not not just one, the, his earlier movie, Sparkler, you know, has Grace Zabriskie in it and Freddie Prinze Jr. And I, like, I was like, oh, my God, you're a real filmmaker, you know? So that was a big push for me to think that I could do it. And then the other thing that happened that really pushed it is that as I'm writing the script, Mark Cuban of all people, became a Peaches fan, (laughs) which was wild, right? So Mark Cuban acquired Landmark Theaters, which was the chain of theaters that I was working for as a manager. It's also where I did Midnight Mass. And so what happened was Mark was reviewing grosses and looked at some ridiculous movie title in San Francisco and said, how did this what is this? That what is this? It can't be that movie that made five thousand or six thousand dollars on a, in a night, you know. And someone said to him, "Oh no, that's correct. That's our manager Joshua, who is Peaches Christ and does this show, Midnight Mass." Mark said, "Tell me more," you know. And so Mark actually ended up producing, executive producing a TV show that he put on his cable network called HDNet at the time. And because of that, because of a billionaire who was lovely to me. And so sweet, you know, I think my preconceived notion was this guy owns the Dallas Mavericks. Like what, what could he possibly be interested in? You know, what do I have that would be of interest to him? And what I realized after, you know, this experience was he's a showman and he understood showmanship and he also understood sort of ambition and drive and creativity. And so he saw all of that in me, which made me think he's going to pay for my movie which he did not. (laughs) But hey, it was enough that he produced the TV show that it got me serious enough to work on that third draft, that fourth draft, you know, to really get the script to a place where it was good enough to really start showing people investors and talent and all that. And Mark was lovely about rejecting me. He was very encouraging about the script and he was very much a businessman. And he said, look, I'm coming off three horror movies, in fact, that did not do well. One was he had done Teresa's. He had done one of the Black Christmas remakes. And there was something else. I forget. There was like three in a row that were not good for him. And he had started to get into, through his magnet arm of Magnolia, acquiring foreign horror films. So he was he had a great success with the host and let the right one in. So he was basically like, go out, find your money. You'll find it. And then come back to me when you've made your movie. And that's that's what we ended up doing. And then we did a, a little distribution deal through Landmark Theaters for the theatrical. Where did you find your money? Honestly, it was a friend of mine who'd worked with me for many, many years, who knew that we were uh, out looking for money, who said, you know, I don't talk about this very often, but my father has actually invested in films. And um, I said, like, what? Anything I've heard of? And he mentioned this Bruce Weber documentary, which I had seen, actually. And then he said, Anaconda. <laughs> like, the J-Lo Anaconda? And he said, yeah. And that's when I was like, okay, well, if he's invested in Anaconda, then he'll maybe get what we're doing. But I'll say that because he was the father of a friend, you know, again, it was just, you know, that's really how I got my foot in the door and then was able to have this meeting where I was, you know, able to kind of sell sell what we were doing. And he and I still work together to this day. So, you know, we've had a long relationship of him, you know, believing in sort of the weird world I've created. And so he invested in All About Evil. He was the primary investor. And then we brought in a couple smaller investors. Where did you get your cast? Some of them 
were friends. So of course, the the drag queens in the movie were all people that I was already working with. And then actually, two of the biggest stars, you know, were were cult film icons who I worshipped and celebrated. And so through Midnight Mass, I had become friends with Mink Stoll and Cassandra Peterson, who's Elvira. And so I had actually been doing shows with both those women as peaches for years at that point. With Mink, it was many years. And with Cassandra, it was for sure, like maybe four or five years. And so I just asked those two, you know, and Cassandra, of the two of them, Mink said yes right away, um, which she says in interviews on the new Blu-ray that they're putting out. There's a, a featurette documentary where I hear Mink, because I, I they talk about me on this featurette and they're t- saying things that I've never heard them say before. Why? <laughs> And Mink says, you know, I said yes right away. But you can tell when she says that she's kind of going like, and maybe I should have read the script, you know, because, of course, you know, she found out later that we were going to sew her mouth shut and do all that that shit, you know, which she really hadn't, you know, done a lot of prosthetics or, you know, I mean, but let's face it, Mink Stoll's done way worse than that. You know, John, John Waters has put her through way more hell than I possibly did. But Cassandra was maybe... A little more, I wouldn't say, yeah, she wanted to do it, but she was a little more reluctant. And she's pretty honest about that. Like she hadn't, she had not appeared out of Elvira drag since Pee Wee's Big Adventure, you know, which was, I don't remember, maybe 84 when that movie came out. I don't remember, but you know, it had been a long time and, you know, she was very comfortable performing as one character. And I'm asking her to do really the opposite, like, oh, you know, all the outrageous comedy you're known for, all of the spectacle that you're known for. No, no, no. You and poor Thomas Decker have to be the boring people in this movie and you have to anchor the insanity with normalcy. And so they had, I think, in some ways, a harder job, you know, because they had to be the straight people. And neither of them are that (laughs) at all. And then Thomas, who is phenomenal, such a great actor, was someone Darren knew. And Darren just knew that Thomas, who was a big Hollywood working actor at at that time, like, you know, had had gone from TV show to TV show to movie to movie was on the um, Sarah Connor Chronicles Terminator show. He played John Connor. And so Darren actually arranged for us to meet him on the set of that show, which was surreal. But once we got into Thomas's trailer and I saw that he had a Desperate Living DVD, I said, oh, my God, you know, he was 20 years old, you know, and I'm like, wait, you know, this movie, Desperate Living. He's like, oh, I love that movie. I'm like, did you know that Mink Stoll is going to be in our movie? You know, and then the more we were talking, the more I realized he was a Hollywood kid who wanted to be an underground artist. So I was like, you need to come and do my movie. Like, confidently, I can tell you, you need to come up to San Francisco and and, and, and be in the gritty, grimy drag world underground and of course he knew that and uh and he did do that and i don't think his team wanted him to do that and then some of the cast were san francisco auditions some were los angeles auditions with casting directors like and noah segan was another friend of um darren's and patrick bristow was a friend of mine because we had done showgirl screenings together and then the big last holdout was deborah which is really ironic considering that's the character that sort of colors the whole movie. And so Natasha was introduced to me through our director of photography, Tom Richmond, who I was so grateful to have on board because he's so talented. And at one point, after we'd gone through a series of actors for that role, Tom just looked at me and he said, so who is your number one choice? Like, if you could have anyone, sky's the limit. And I said, Natasha Leone. I just feel like when I was writing the movie, I kept picturing like Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall and women that were in horror movies that I grew up loving. And at the time that we made this movie, and even today, you know, a lot of the actresses, unfortunately, I feel like misogyny has actually gotten worse in the business, you know, and and the way you look is actually more important now than it was in the 70s. And, you know, I wanted someone that was beautiful, but unique, you know, that didn't look like 10 other people, you know, and that was tough, you know, at, you know, when we were casting the movie. But Tom Richmond had shot the slums of Beverly Hills, was the director of photography that literally put me in touch with Natasha Leone. And it really helps if you're a director. And your cinematographer is someone an actor already likes and trusts 
that's huge. Like that had never even occurred to me, but now I know. So um, it really, really helped that Tom was shooting the movie, of course. And also that Natasha's a weirdo and a film buff. And, you know, when I talked to her and I started to try to explain to her, like as if she didn't know who inspired me to make the movie. And I started to list things, names like Herschel Gordon Lewis And then I said, and then there's this woman who's the only exploitation filmmaker, you know, working in a world of men. And really, I just I love her and her and and Natasha interrupts me and goes, Doris Wishman. And I'm like, wait, you know who Doris Wishman is? And Natasha Leone says, oh, no, no, I know Doris Wishman. And Natasha is like a massive film fan. And and she not only knew who Doris Wishman was, but like met her somehow through her mother at the time or something. I don't remember, but it just blew my mind. And that's when I was like, oh, she'll get this script. She'll get it. Yeah. And then she read the script and it was like maybe a week later, she was in San Francisco. It was down to the wire. Did you end up shooting where you worked? Was that your theater? No, but we were supposed to shoot at the theater where Midnight Mass was. And what happened was that we closed the theater landmark. You know, they wanted to support the movie and we closed the theater so that we could make the movie. And the art department went in because the Bridge Theater, while a single screen neighborhood theater, because Landmark had run it, it didn't have sort of the creepy Gothic vibe that I wanted the theater to have. It was, it was you know, had new carpet and freshly painted walls. So the art department started to go in to like kind of degrade it. And the owners of the building, because Landmark was leasing the building, basically threatened a lawsuit because it was a violation of the lease for the theater to not be open to the public. So that was like huge, much like getting Natasha at the 11th hour was a a thing where I'm like, imagine the movie without Natasha Lyonne. Now I also can't imagine the movie taking place at the bridge because it forced us into the Victoria, which was so much more befitting of this story and and more in line with what I was picturing, even when I wrote it. So it actually ended up working out for the best. Yeah, it's an amazing location and it does fit that kind of grindhouse aesthetic that you're going for. It is creepy and it's it's, it's a big brick, creepy kind of gothic old vaudeville house that was, you know, built way back in the day as a vaudeville house. And, you know, we were lucky that it's also a cinema because I think in the 80s or 90s, you know, the film festivals started to need extra space. It was before all the multiplexes had been built in the city. So the the Victoria was one that people kind of got together and invested in. So they had a proper screen and sound system and everything installed. So we could we could present it as if it were movie theater. Although there are things in the movie that would not really happen in an actual cinema. For example, the screen flying up into the ceiling. That makes no sense. But, you know, I was like, that's what this is and I want to use it. So we went ahead and put it in the movie. What were some of your best memories of making it? Some of my best memories are just the joy of, you know, seeing this idea that you had in your head for years come to life right before your eyes. You know, as a, as a creator, it was almost like there was a giddiness involved to me. I remember one shot in particular where I got chills, you know, and, you know, I don't think that other people would maybe particularly get why emotionally it resonated with me so much, but it was when it's just a shot where they're going to the library, you know, the evil family is going to the library to to make their movie, the maiming of the shrew, where they're going to sew Mink's mouth shut. But there's just this shot of them walking through the fog in San Francisco. And you see the silhouette of Deborah and the the twins and Jack Donner with the camera. And Noah is holding the boom microphone and they're just walking down the street. Natasha's really strutting with confidence. And like, I remember when we were filming that and they were, you know, spraying the fog and, you know, they, you know, they'd let me yell action or I would yell action. They didn't allow it. I was the director. Actually, sometimes it was the smaller moments. Although one of the big, big, big moments that I'll never forget was because I was in the scene as Peaches and I knew the stress of getting this scene done correctly. I knew going into some of these big gore moments that the producers were really stressed out about it and that I was always under the pressure of 
hopefully getting some of this stuff in one take because the expense of replacing the practical effects and resetting everything and like some of it, I mean, it, it really could blow the budget out of the water. So it was the scene where the twins, it's their death scene, but watching them perform and what you see in the movie is one take. And we we did, it was 4.35 in the morning. So the sun's about to come up, right? So you have all that pressure and they felt the pressure because they knew what we were up against and they knew none of us wanted them to mess it up because they'd be covered in blood and there were special effects and to reset was going to be crazy. So I felt like there was all this pressure and I was in drag watching them do this because I'm in the, in the scene. And I think because they're twins that if you've seen the movie, you'll understand that even great actors, there is a respect, there is a boundary that actors sort of acknowledge with one another, especially when there's not a lot of time with rehearsal. So especially with one take, they tend to be more gentle on a first take, even if their job is to be aggressive with one one another. They don't want to actually hurt the other person. They they want to be, you know, there's someone on on set to, to help you with combat and stunts and things. So the fact that these are two girls who are actual sisters and they have to be violent towards each other, when they started to to actually, you know, thrust knives into one another and stuff. I'm totally spoiling it. But oh my God, I remember being like, holy shit, this is better than I could have imagined it. Because they had no fear. Because they, they had that comfort of, I'm not going to hurt her. She's my sister, you know. And they nailed it. And then one of them slips and falls. And we just kept going. Like, we just kept rolling. And so when I see that scene in the movie, I'm always like, oh, that was an amazing moment, you know, when we were shooting. Now, obviously, you had directed people having made so many shorts before you made this feature. But what was it like directing this cast? It seems like it might have been a little bit more of a upper echelon from what you're used to. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't intimidated by the idea of directing people. You know, Natasha had been directed by Woody Allen. You know, it's like she'd already been in a million movies. You know, Thomas had been directed by John Carpenter, you know, as a kid. So it's like, I knew this going in, you know, Elvira is Elvira. Do you know what I mean? Like she's the star of her own movie. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. And Mink Stoll has been directed by my favorite director of, you know, ever. So like, I would be lying if I said I wasn't totally intimidated, but John Waters actually gave me some advice going into it. And one of the pieces of advice I remember him giving me was to always act as if you know what is going on and to answer confidently, even if you're not sure. So now I know better what that means because with the stage shows, which I'm lucky that I had all that experience before directing a first feature, it wasn't really just the short films. I had done so many stage shows where it's really similar, you know, where a lot of people are asking you how it should look, what what the choreography should be, what the costume should be. So I think because of all of that, I understood what he meant on a movie. The pressure is even more intense because a lot of it's in the moment. And when the clock is ticking, it just means dollars are you know flying out the window. So I would try as best as possible to make the actors and not just the actors, but also the art department or costuming or whoever believe that I knew exactly what I was doing. And of course, sometimes I did. And sometimes I had no idea. <laughs> so, I mean, I was, I was faking it sometimes, not always, but you know, if, if, if it came down to showing them that I was, wasn't sure or confused versus faking it, I always faked it. And I think that was good advice that he gave me. Did pretty much everything that you shot end up on screen or is there a missing cut of all about evil someplace? Actually, our editor, Rick LeCompte, who was a veteran editor, made the comment once that it was the movie that most cut to script he'd ever done. So if you actually read the script for the movie and then you watch and you watch the movie alongside it, which I recently did because Shudder required me to create a script where like everything is in there, including the ums and the, you know, so you have to go in. And so I actually got to experience like how close together the script was to the finished movie. There's one deleted scene. It's very short. And that's about it. There's really very little that's not in the movie. Again, another bit of advice that John Waters gave me the first version of the screenplay. I think I sent to him 
it, which is surreal for me to like have my idol also be like a mentor and in, in offering advice. And he basically told me that the screenplay was too long, but the way he said it was everyone's screenplay is too long. And what ends up happening is you, you end up editing it after you've shot and you've spent money, you've wasted money. And once you cut these moments out of the movie, you never get that money back. And that's money that could have been spent somewhere else. So when you do your next draft, think of it like you're editing your movie. What can you live without? And, and maybe tell yourself this movie needs to be under 100 minutes because face it, the style of movie you're making, no one wants it to be any longer than 100 minutes. So, you know, I took that so seriously, you know, and All About Evil, I think, is at 98 minutes or something. And and like I said, there's that one very short deleted scene. But if you read the original script, the one that he was commenting on, oh, my God, there's probably 20 more pages that I cut. So I think that also really was great advice. I mean, the producers, there are things that the producers literally told me, no. (laughs) Or they said, you can do it, but, you know, it's going to look really cheap and really bad because there were, you know, some special effects and things that were written into the script that I had to take out. So it wasn't necessarily objections to content. No. In fact, there were maybe an actor here or there. Cassandra was one. She did not like the guillotine scene at all and talked to me about that. And I really said to her, like, my intent was to show that this woman's betraying her own sex in order to make these movies. And and when the movie was finished and she saw the movie, she actually said, oh, you you nailed it. Like, the tone is right. I understand the scene. I get the scene. But the way, you know, I it's not something... I was comfortable with, but now she, you know, she says that she actually likes the way it all plays out. There was never anyone monitoring me as far as content went. And I think partly that's probably because if you were working with me or investing in me or whatever, part of my whole thing is being outrageous and, and sort of pushing buttons. So I think in a way it would be silly to be like, Oh, we better rain in peaches Christ. You know, it's like, if anything, they might've wanted me to go further. Who knows? You know, the budget stuff is where, so in the original script, the theater was infested with rats. And so there were a lot of rat moments and there was a King rat who would sit, run up Mr. Twiggs' leg and like sit on his shoulder and Mr. Twiggs would feed him. The big moment for the rats was when Mink's character in the attic opened her mouth and ripped through her stitches. Her face was devoured by the rats. So she was sort of eaten alive. And, you know, so there was stuff like that that was very grand as far as special effects go that the the producers were like, no. (laughs) It's kind of nice, this whole thing of you editing before it even goes in front of the camera, just to be able to kill your babies at that point rather than shoot them and then have to cry about it later. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very important. And and there were things in the moment that from the movie, because Brian Benson, who's one of the producers on the movie, I remember him saying, like, you, you make the movie three times, you make the movie when you write the movie. And then you make the movie when you shoot the movie. And then you make the movie when you edit the movie. And it is true that while we were shooting the movie, there were places where actually there's photos I recently came across through doing all this digging for Severin of behind the scenes stuff. And I remembered I had this flashback remembering me sitting in the library and writing out a whole kill sequence that we had, you know, planned for with characters and everything. But we were just racing the clock. And so, and I knew that we weren't going to get back into the library. Our locations manager, we sent, we gave the the San Francisco public library folks a fake script that I wrote. <laughs> and so we're in there doing all this shit that they didn't, you know, and there was someone there, you know, that, you know, supervising. And here we are like sewing Mink's mouth shut in the kitty section, you know, And this is not the script that I gave them because they would not have allowed us to do that. So, you know, the locations manager is like, you're not getting back in here. So we, I knew that I had to write some stuff out of the script. You talked about how magical it was seeing those shots come to life before your very eyes. What's it like for you when you see the whole thing projected with an audience the first time? Stressful. I don't know how it is for, I actually think maybe I should ask other filmmakers I don't know. I'm guessing maybe filmmakers have different experiences with watching their movie with with audiences. I think that part of my 
frustration and anxiety with with films and making films and then watching them with the audience is that I'm used to being on stage and reading the audience's energy and then redirecting what I'm doing to feed whatever the moment is. So even in a lot, like I've done runs of shows, you know, like, like, like in Provincetown, let's say where I'm doing the same show multiple times a night, week after week after week for an entire summer season. But you'll notice that we, we, we change the way we do the comedy depending on the audience. or we change the size of the joke or whatever. You'll always have some wiggle room to sort of match the energy. But with a movie, you don't. You know, once whatever you've done, whatever decisions you've made, they are locked in. So for me, a performer sitting in an auditorium with an audience like, oh, God, it's just torture. If Unless they're just that amazing audience who's just reacting exactly the way you want them to in every moment. And that never happens. So, you know, it, it's it's frustrating. I will say this. The third act of the movie pretty much delivers consistently. So what I often did on tour was I would let the movie start and I would, you know, go into the lobby or do whatever I was doing. But if I wanted to kind of enjoy it, I'd always go in for for the last few scenes because they were, you know, they would work with the audience. It was rare that the reaction wasn't what I was hoping for. So once the film is done, what happens with it? Do you play festivals? You talked about a limited theatrical run with Landmark. I mean, tell me more. It did play at a bunch of festivals, which was a lot of fun and really lovely. And then the the Landmark theatrical, because of the popularity of Midnight Mass and my relationship with Landmark, it did. We did book it in some markets where I never I never went to those markets. Like someone recently posted something about having seen it in Philadelphia. And I was like, oh, that's right. It did. It did run in markets that I didn't go to like Texas. We never, oh, that's not true. We did go to Austin and played at the Alamo. It did play at theaters outside of the landmark circuit. It wasn't just landmark. Like I think, you know, I remember we did the music box in Chicago. Um, So it definitely was beyond just landmark, but I personally as peaches went to like 18 different markets and did a whole show, you know, with the movie and did this sort of like William Castle, you know, vaudevillian style creep show, you know, thing that of course I was always obsessed with, you know, the idea of that, you know, I just love all the spook shows from the the 50s and 60s and, you know, just really tried to do something like that. And we did event screenings and, and different members of the cast would go to different markets with me. And so the show was always pretty flexible as far as who was there and how it was delivered. And the way we did it was I would figure out ahead of time who the cool underground monster, you know, horror drag performers were, or sometimes it was a Rocky Horror cast or, you know, whoever, punk rock, a group of, you know, a band, whoever, and we would get them engaged. And so they would be sent choreography videos ahead of time and they would be sent costuming tutorials and makeup tutorials so that I could roll into town sometimes the day of the show, meet people, say, hi, so nice to finally meet you. And then do a rehearsal or a run through and then do the show. And then I would leave. It was really like a really wild time. And there was this young fan who had interviewed me for a book he was working on about horror hosts before All About Evil. And his name is Michael Verratti, who I now do a podcast with. And Michael Verratti, who I had not yet met in person, reached out to me and said, hey, this this roadshow you're doing, like, who's documenting it? And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, needs to be documented. I said, we don't have the budget for that. Are you kidding? Barely, you know, I can't even believe we're doing this. And he said, well, look, if I pay my own way, can I join you all on the road? Because I'd like to write about this. And I said, yeah, if if you want to do that. So, of course, he comes along with us and we all become friends. And he basically starts creating journals and diary entries documenting this whole experience. And I passively mentioned that to Severin, that that's how I met Michael, because everyone knows that Michael and I work together. Now we do the podcast, we write together a lot. And David Gregory at Severin was like, wait, does he still have those journals? I said, probably. So that's actually one of the things that's coming out with the Blu-ray is the Tour de Fierce Diaries written by Michael Vardy. So it's, it's a, so if you're interested in how these roadshows actually went, 
that documentation comes with the Blu-ray. Oh, that's fantastic. Otherwise, it'd just be lost forever. Kind of, yeah. I mean, we did have it online for a while, but but creating it, putting it in a book form and including it with the Blu-ray, it really is like, oh, and by the way, this movie came out in the most bizarre, you know, distribution fashion. So how did this deal with Severin come about? This is a, a re-release on Blu-ray, remastered, all these extras, it sounds like. It sounds fantastic. Well, I had wanted to do like a 10-year anniversary thing. And because the investor had chosen to self-distribute, you know, instead of take any of the deals that we were offered for North American distribution, it was distributed in other parts of the world. But at the time the movie came out, the economy had really collapsed and the economics of the indie film market completely changed forever. They're still not the same. They still have not rebounded from that. And so the offers we were being offered were nowhere near what anyone thought we might be offered, but also no movie was being offered the kind of deals that were being offered before 2009 and 2008. So it was this situation where as a filmmaker, I was frustrated because I just wanted eyes on the movie. Like there's a point where you don't care about money. You just want people to see your movie. But the business people were like, no, more money if we just, you know, distributed ourselves. And probably they did, you know, you know, because they sold out of all the DVDs they made and they leased it to NBC Universal and it was on the Chiller Network. But after a few years, it just kind of disappeared. The DVDs were gone. It wasn't on TV anymore. It wasn't, you know, streaming wasn't really a thing yet. And and so over the years, you know, you'd see the Blu-ray or not Blu-ray was never even on Blu-ray, but the DVD would come up on eBay and be going for $500 or something crazy. And, you know, so I'm saying to the investor and people like, we got to get this movie out there. And then I ran into, I was uh, invited to Fantastic Fest in Austin as Peaches to do a show for a documentary that I'm in called Scream Queen. And I was there for that. And Sam Zimmerman, who's the head of Shudder, with AMC Entertainment was there. And I, I went up to him and I said, Hey, Sam, I'm, I was out of drag. So I had to introduce myself. And he immediately said that he loved All About Evil. And I said, Well, that's good because I love Shudder. And any interest? And he said, Absolutely. Like everyone's kind of been wondering where, how do you get it? Where, where is it? And I said, Well, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to the investors and, you know, I think they're, they'd like to get it back out into the world. And then I think, David Gregory must have contacted me shortly after that from Severin. And so we got the ball rolling actually just pre-pandemic. Then the pandemic happens and we keep the ball rolling. You know, there's all this rigmarole you have to do, even be sure that you can, you know, deliver the movie the way they need it to be delivered. But I actually started stalling because I just felt like this sucks. Like my idea of a, of a 10 year anniversary included live event screenings. Like that's what the whole movie's about. And so I kind of, you know, and probably like a lot of people was sort of depressed about what was going on in the world and, you know, just kind of lost some interest in it. So it was kind of an accident that it got stalled, worked out beautifully because I never could have predicted that Russian doll season two would be like hitting in this massive hit and that Natasha Leone would be hosting the season finale of Saturday Night Live, like her star, I could never have imagined. I mean, I've always known that she's brilliant and talented, but the fact is, it actually was the right thing to do to wait a little bit because Natasha is on the cover of every magazine. You know, she's just everywhere. And that just is, you know, the icing on the cake. So, so it's nice because the timing actually worked out really well. So when is it hitting Blu-ray and when is it hitting Shutter? Funnily enough, I've been spent my weekend signing on um, Blu-ray slip covers and the Blu-ray, they start selling it this week at the events. So LA is on Thursday. Now, how it gets distributed or how they're selling it on Severin's website and in stores, I don't really know. I think that must start any day now. I don't, I don't know, but I know that the Blu-ray is I I I signed the slip covers. So I know that it's, you know, gonna be at the events. And I would imagine they're doing pre-orders and stuff. And then Shutter starts on the 13th, which is Monday. Wow. So, yeah. That's great. I'm glad you're at this time because now I imagine you're going to be going out and doing a lot of events. 
only really planned to do two, one in L.A. and one in San Francisco, mostly because, you know, I did the 18 city tour like I did not feel the need. And it's a movie now that's going to be out in the world. You know, it's not a premiere anymore. But the lovely thing is Carla Rossi, who's a drag queen in Portland, who does a series called Queer Horror, who has said that she created that series inspired by Midnight Mass in San Francisco. She invited me to come up and I was like, well, I can't say no to you. You're like, you know, doing you're doing the thing that I used to do. So I get to go to her show and her and her cast of queens are going to honor the movie which I can't believe that. And I love it. And, you know, they're fans of the movie and I'm very excited because I'm bringing a very special date with me who's going to blow their mind. I don't want to say for sure because this person's popular enough that like something could change and they might not be available, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that Portland gig. And then some other cities have reached out to say, how do we book it? How do we do this? And it's kind of caused me to, to create one woman show behind the scenes clips the deleted scene photos that i will now travel with just peaches or joshua solo to do these screenings where it's just going to be a different kind of show than what i did 12 years ago 12 years ago was the big drag extravaganza this is just going to be the peaches you know more behind the scenes story with media and clips and stories so I'm excited about that. And it, it just got booked. That version of the show just got booked in Phoenix, Arizona. So yeah, who knows? I don't know. At this point, if anyone's interested in bringing the Peaches All About Evil show to your town, just reach out to me online. Is your podcast partner going to be going with you to document it? Well, he's actually, what's interesting is for LA and San Francisco, because there's so many of us that are, you know, with so many of the cast and producers and people, I said to Michael, You know, I am in many ways not the best person to moderate or lead these Q&As or these interviews because I'm like too, I mean, it's me asking them and it doesn't, you know, it feels weird. Like, what was it like working with me? You know, what did you think of my script? You know, when you read it, like, I don't want to be, you know, it, it just feels weird. So I never, we never did that as part of the premiere because it was, it was more about the Q&As were more me talking to Mink Stoll about, you know, her fabulous career, not about working on All About Evil. Whereas these shows are really obviously going to be more about All About Evil and looking back at All About Evil. So Michael, my collaborator and co-host of the Midnight Mass podcast, is actually going to be the one who's moderating all of that. And I'll go sit with the uh, with the cast. So tell me more about the Midnight Mass podcast. Like everybody who's an entertainer, who did not yet already have a podcast, the pandemic happened. And, you know, I'm part of the many millions of new podcasts that were born during the pandemic. But I will say that it's been on my list for some time because being peaches and getting older, the the podcast format is very comfortable for me because getting in drag is, is, is time consuming. It is uncomfortable. It hurts. And there's nothing I love more as, you know, being peaches than, than, than to celebrate movies. That's my real love affair with this character that I've created is that I really am a dork when it comes to movies and cult movies. And, and so I have not figured out yet how to monetize this podcast to be worth anything that compares to the amount of time we put into it, you know, so it is a labor of love and it is a lot of fun. And, and essentially, it is just a joyful, unapologetic celebration of cult movies. And so we don't, you know, there's so many movie podcasts, as you know, out there. I said, you know, Michael, I'm like, we really have to figure out a, a way to do something that's uniquely us as much as possible. And, you know, there's so many queer horror podcasts. And Michael led the way with queer horror podcasts. I mean, he had the first one called Dead for Filth, you know, years ago. So we both agreed that we wanted to do something different. And so it was like, okay, we're going to really focus on why are these cult movies? What is it that people love about them? Why do we want to celebrate them? What makes them so lovable and, 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 you know, survive the test of time. And that's really where the show, you know, that that's what it is. That's what it's about. So we tend to be very positive, you know, I love listening to movie podcasts. And so the the thing was, is actually there's one that I listened to that is so positive and I just love it so much. So they think it inspired me. 
and it's the guy. Oh my God, his what is his name? Brett Goldstein from um, Ted Lasso. Lasso. So I don't know if you know his podcast, but it's like movies to die for or something. And I listened to a few of those, and I absolutely fell in love with his podcast because his love for movies and his guests' love for movies is infectious. And so basically, but they don't really cover cult movies too often. They tend to, you know, it's funny actually. The movies that tend to come up over and over again, they're more they're more centered around his guests' relationship to movies, which is great. But what we do is we choose a different cult movie, or you know genre or icon and, and really dig in and, and celebrate that. And sometimes it's with people who were in the movies and sometimes it's, well, we usually have two guests on per episode, but almost always we try to feature at least someone whose like life was changed, you know, because they discovered this movie, you know, it really informed their life. So you are never one to not have a lot of things going on. What else are you working on? Well, right now I'm in the process of building a new Terror Vault show. And Terror Vault is my immersive haunted attraction that happens at the San Francisco Mint building every fall. And last year we did the Immortal Reckoning and it was the biggest, best, coolest show I've ever done for sure, hands down. And the reason it was so great, and I can say that it was so great, is because I never had that much time to work on a show. You know, I had an extra year to write it, to build it. Like we'd never had that before. So now of course I'm scrambling. It feels very stressful again. You know, the clock is ticking. We're way behind, you know, and uh, I'm kind of a little bit like, Oh God, I wonder what the summoning is going to be like, but we're doing a new show and it's called the summoning. And yeah, but you know, the thing is, is we learn every year and we're bringing back our immersive vampire bar fang bang that we did before. And so I'm working on that a lot. And then I have a Castro theater drag parody show happening in late August called Drag Becomes Her that I do with Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme. And that's a show we've done a lot. So I'm looking forward to that because I know that show works and it's so much fun. But, you know, and the, the hard work is already done. The hardest part has just been rescheduling it 10 times, you know. Well, please tell Jinx that I love her. I will. You know, she's my drag daughter. So, you know, amazing. Well, I mean, I have to say I'm very proud mother. I mean, I don't know if you watch or watching the new season of Drag Race. Right. And so, you know, of course, I had a hand in her Natasha Leone for Snatch Game. And and I was very, very proud of her. And what's hilarious is that we did not, you know, I worked with her a little bit on, you know, going to the All-Stars, All-Winners, All-Star season. But it was not Natasha Leone and Judy Garland. So Judy Garland was a surprise. That was an 11th hour. I mean, I knew that she had done it because, you know, of course we talked when she got back, but what we had worked on was Meryl Streep. I just can't believe that she switched gears at the 11th hour. And then does Judy Garland and perhaps does the best snatch game performance in the history of snatch game, right? Like she popped her own Edie Beal, which was previous best, you know, so yes, I'm a very proud drag mother. I love this new Jinx 2.0. She was so just unsure of herself, that whole, you know, water off a duck's back. I my heart just went out to her. Yeah. And then to see now, she just seems like she's very, very full of confidence. And it's fantastic to just see her come in and she's just cleaning house. I'm just thrilled. And you know, she won season five. And I often said to people, I'm like, God, you know, what's interesting is she won that season of drag race and only one tenth of her actual talent was showcased. Like if people had any clue how fucking brilliant and talented this person is, they haven't even really gotten to a singing challenge yet. And it's like, God, when she opens her mouth and sings a song, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's effortless for her. And then watching her the other day in the uh, improv challenge as the pig, you know, just delicious. The other thing I love about this season, because I love drag race, but I was kind of getting tired of it after a while because it was so, there was so much of it. Like I couldn't keep up with it. And, you know, I have British friends, you know, I perform in the UK and it's like, I've got to watch this season. I've got to watch it. And finally my partner and I kind of were like, Okay, we're going to take a little break from Drag Race. So we we have taken a little break from it. Not to say anything bad about Drag Race, but too much of a good thing, you know. 
and what I love about this season is not only are a ton of my friends on it, but I love that there's no elimination. That part, taking that part away has really made this more lovely experience. You know, watching these people, these enormously talented people get to be talented, you know, perform without the sort of cutthroat anxiety that I may go home and it may all end. You know, it's made a, I enjoy it more. I told my wife when we were watching, I was like, this is the best improv challenge I've ever seen. It was amazing. It was so yeah. great. And that's the other thing. I mean, they're all winners, right? And, you know, I mean, with the Snatch Game, I actually, I mean, I loved Trinity's Leslie Jordan. But I have to say, I felt like Raja, uh, you know, that that madam was genius. That was like, yeah, just drag brilliance. And then her Diana Breland. Wow. So they're all they're all just kind of like, you know, because, you, you know, a lot of people dismiss Raja as just being like a runway model. It's like, oh, no, no, no. You know, the, watch her in that snatch game. She is like amazing. And I love, I mean, Monet is a good friend of mine and I just love Monet. I mean, yeah, they're all winners for a reason. So it's like, wow, this is, it makes a difference. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all of your projects? I'm most active on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm verified in those places. So following me there, my nieces are really pushing me to do TikTok and I've been reluctant. So Who knows? I do have a TikTok account, but I rarely post stuff. And yeah, and then also just peacheschrist.com, you know. Joshua, it is always nice talking with you. And this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Bats are waving my honey go 